0: Welcome to What The If, the show where we're always looking up, except when we're not.
1: Yeah, well, we have looked up things on occasion and Google makes it (laughs) easier to look things up when needed, which for which I'm very (laughs) grateful. That's true. We're always looking something up. Um, that is my colleague, um,
0: Professor Matthew Stanley. I decided to give you a boxer's intro.
1: No, I appreciate it. That's great. It's, yeah, uh, and in fact, I am just wearing uh, boxer shorts and gloves, so it's, uh, it works <laughs> Perfect. out perfectly. Yeah,
0: yeah. And instead of weighing in, we won't. Go, you know, it's not weight. It's intellectual weight. No, yeah, yes, that's
1: right. We uh, we measure the total capacity of your brain skull, um, of your your brain size, and uh, and that has never had any bad repercussions in the past. So we'll just keep on. No, going. yeah, exactly. Intellectual fights actually make your brain stronger.
0: Mm-hmm. So you know that's what I kept telling the football players in the uh, in high school anyway, um, to no effect. Uh, Matt, would you like to introduce our guest? Our
1: honored guest today. I'm very would, Yeah, excited. we're delighted to uh, be be connecting up to the, uh, the far side of the pond here uh, and have Joe Marchant, our uh, a science journalist and science writer uh, in South London, uh, author of The New uh, Human Cosmos. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, so Joe, you have a, a, n- a new book. We'll call it a new book. It's,
0: it could be new if if. If you know of the book and you already have it, you are already thoroughly enjoying it and have been enlightened by it, but it could be new. It's relatively new. And it's called The Human Cosmos.
2: Yeah, that's right. It was out before Christmas, The Human Cosmos, Civilization and the Stars. So I wanted to write the story of our, well, humanity's changing relationship with the heavens All those people that have looked up at the stars throughout our history, what has it meant to us? Why has it been important? Especially because that's a view that we're, you know, we're losing. We're seeing fewer and fewer stars. So I wanted to know why have they been important? Um, What difference have the stars made to us?
0: Yeah, indeed. I would We'll get to our if, right, in a second. But I just say I want to know the point at which it stopped being meaningful at all, uh, except for science fiction purposes, in which case the mind still wanders um what our question today first of all matt why don't you just give a, give us a brush up on how do what does this mean what what the if
1: is so grammatically incorrect <laughs> <laughs> What, what the um, if yeah, does that mean? Right. What if. In, in yeah. both American and English English, yeah. It yeah. is grammatically <laughs> incorrect. Uh, yeah, so what we do here is we, um, uh, we change something about reality or about the world. Sometimes we uh, turn off gravity. Sometimes we get rid of people's toes. Um, <laughs> sometimes we go back and uh, you know imagine if uh, Winston Churchill hadn't, hadn't lived. Um, and then we run with the consequences um, and see uh, what kind of a world we end up with. Um, and sometimes we end up destroying reality, but but not always. Um, and uh, generally, we, uh, we get upset about it. We, we put some emotion into this. Uh, so we end up with the uh, uh, the question mark exclamation point um, at the end of our what the if.
0: Indeed. Indeed. And
1: so this week, in
0: honor of Joe, uh, in honor of your book, uh, and, and in honor of your inspiration to remind us to look up. We are asking, what the if we couldn't see the sky? That sounds very strange. There would be something there. What if the sky okay, so first challenge as we define our terms, as we as we create our thought experiment we tweak our thought experiments what do we see let's just settle that
1: yeah joe is it enough to say that the skies are just really cloudy all the time or do we need something
2: Yeah, well, how extreme do you want to go with this? Because you could just say, what if we couldn't see the stars? You know, the cosmos, the planets and the stars, but we can see, uh, you know, the sun and the moon. Or, yeah, what if it was cloudy all the time, but then it's getting light and dark, so we're getting that sense of, of change, but we can't actually see what's beyond the clouds. Um, or what if there was just no change above us and there was nothing to see at all? So, you know, how, how extreme are you going?
1: Interesting. All right, I say we go... Uh, uh, full Scotland and say <laughs> the sky is cloudy, so cloudy all the time, uh, we can't see any objects in the sky. We can tell if it's day or night, mm-hmm. um, but maybe we can't see the sun to uh, to, to register that. Uh, but it's just light or dark. So we've got no Doesn't idea
2: happen? of anything beyond the clouds. The, the universe could just end right yeah. there.
1: Yeah, I see we do that. Good. Uh, I should say i I spent a winter in Berlin um, and that is kind of how it felt all the time uh, just totally gray sky <laughs> yeah <laughs> every day totally unbroken and unchanging
2: I think Boston it feels like, like that sometimes as well <laughs>
1: yeah yeah um, and much of the world
0: unfortunately not so much even clouds but just pollution or mm.
2: uh,
0: whatever um, by the way that reminds me when the pandemic began uh and the lockdown began. And everybody there was a period there, Was that, in April, where, and it happened to coincide with spring here in the Northern Hemisphere, which is all usually quite pleasant anyway. The air in New York, which is the only one I can attest to as an eyewitness, was stunningly clear. And the sky was a deep blue that I've never mm. seen before.
2: We had the same here. You could see from the park near me all the way across the London to the woods on hills on the other side. Or I was looking at the star Sirius one night with my kids and it was, I know that Sirius is meant to sparkle with this kind of rainbow light and I'd never seen it. And then we looked up and it was doing it. So yeah, it was, it was really amazing. Just yeah. Around April time. Absolutely. Before we all started (laughs) traveling again. That's right. That's right.
0: In fact, I, I was thinking maybe each week, each week, each year. We could have like a cleanse, cleaning day, spring Mm -hmm. cleaning.
2: Yeah, like uh, when we uh, don't drink for January, then we should maybe have a. (laughs) It's
1: Lent for the sky. Give up up light pollution for Lent. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. sky. Lent. Um, Do you think
0: for this thought (laughs) experiment, is it that we can't can't see see the sky? sky. Um, it's a new thing, which would be more realistic.
1: Or is no, it? I say, I say we have it up from the start of human civilization. Um, let's see what kind of a, a world we get when we can't see past Ooh. the clouds. Okay. All right. All right. So, some, some proto hominid uh, 500,000 years ago looks up and sees nothing interesting.
2: <laughs> interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, what we can certainly talk about is. How the stars were probably important to people at that time, and what that was giving them, and therefore we can perhaps get from there to what would that have meant if they weren't there. Yeah,
1: that'd be that'd be great. Yeah. So, what is our proto hominid not getting uh, that uh, that our proto hominid would have?
2: So, there's a couple of ways of looking at this, and one is to look at archaeological evidence from the Paleolithic in cave paintings, for example, and try and get a sense of what were they seeing in the sky and why was that important. Um, But obviously they didn't write down any of that down, so it's quite hard to know for sure. And then you can also look at anthropological studies of hunter-gatherer communities living more recently who might have led a similar lifestyle, and they both give a similar picture. So in caves from the Paleolithic times, for example, in art, places like Lascaux Cave in France, You've got all of these animals painted around the walls and the ceilings, but also patterns of dots. There's a particularly intriguing one in Lascaux Cave: this big aurochs bull with a pattern of six dots above its shoulder that sort of matches the Pleiades, and it's particularly interesting because the Pleiades is above the shoulder of a bull in our constellation Taurus, which has led to this idea of were they actually not just painting animals, they're painting the stars and associating the stars with animals. And this is exactly what you see in hunter-gatherer communities where different constellations become visible at different times of year. And that's absolutely seen as entwined with seasonal changes in nature. Um, Native American Blackfoot people, for okay, example. Well, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so so they had a very holistic view of the cosmos. So the, the stars are important for telling you the time of year, the time of night, the direction that you're facing in, orientation. So all of those things. I mean, I guess they would have had a sense of, yeah, the day and night, at least that rhythm of light and dark but that sort of much bigger picture sense of yeah. the timing through the year and where you are, where you're facing, they wouldn't have had.
1: Yeah. Right. So if we don't have the Pleiades as, say, a seasonal marker, are there alternatives? Are there other things that they would seize on to, to mark the, the passing of the months?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they would, you know, you'd still have the sense of, you could measure the length of days for example or you might have a d- particular s- one uh, okay. seasonal marker in nature that you could use to say well when this berry ripens and these other things are going to happen but i think it's that sort of bigger picture sense of a, a a bigger cosmos where everything's connected that they wouldn't have had i guess so practically you yeah. probably could have found ways around it um but maybe it's more of a sort of spiritual Inter- thing
0: yes Here, here's an interesting question Stonehenge, one of my favorite things, and I got, had the pleasure of visiting there a couple of times, um, back in the news again, as it should be, um, with some new discoveries, I think. But whoop, So Stonehenge, like many, if not most, of the um, kind of uh, um, religious, uh, Neolithic structures we're finding, you know, were aligned with, this, uh, with astronomical events, which totally makes sense. And the great discovery at Stonehenge, I remember at least when I was a kid, was that the heel stone is lined up with the solstice. Basically, Stonehenge is aligned with the solstice. And and probably lots of other things too, using different parts of it. But uh, I'm curious what happens if you don't, if we only have cloudy days, right? And so there is no specific dot of the sun. What happens to Stonehenge? Do we wind up with a heel stone that's just like really wide? It's like it's like Stonehenge has to have error bars or something. Neolithic (laughs) error bars.
2: The solstices were so important in in the yeah, in the Neolithic particularly and also amongst hunter-gatherer communities like the Chumash who used to live in California would have these rituals to sort of pull the sun back on course when it's gone to the it's its southern extreme in the depths of winter and they need to pull the sun back or all life on earth is going to perish. It was like crucial importance. So if you just have the pattern of light and dark, warm and cold, but there's no actual kind of body to associate with that. Again yeah it was so bound up in their in their spiritual beliefs of this is how the universe works this is where the souls of the dead go um yeah it would have been just much more just smaller I suppose and yeah like you say more, more diffuse would they have bothered setting up um diffuse. Stone monuments to, to even commemorate that because there's nothing to commemorate, right? Like you look at Newgrange tomb in Ireland as well, which is lined up with winter solstice sunrise. So this beam of light shines right into the heart of the tomb with that sunrise. But if everything's cloudy, yeah. there's nothing to yeah. nothing to capture, is there? There's no ex- moment of experience that sort of encapsulates all of it.
1: Yeah, it's hard to justify building this gigantic rock temple. Um, to line up with no nothing,
2: mm. no, and all no of this is found. Sorry, I was going to say all of this is bound up with politics Please. as well, because in the Paleolithic and in the Neolithic, it were the elites who had this astronomical knowledge, who knew which stars were rising when, who knew the date of the solstice, who knew the ritual to pull the sun back on course. So it was all tied up in the, the sort of the structure of society and who got to be in charge. And then in the Neolithic, you see that getting sort of more complex with these huge monuments that would have taken hundreds of people and all this effort to to build so that sort of coming from sort of small hunter-gatherer communities and societies into bigger groups which is then leading on eventually to the first sort of cities and civilizations the astronomical knowledge was crucial to that so again if that was taken away you think what would have been the organizing force mm-hmm. what would have been the thing that the knowledge that would define you was the person in charge
1: Yeah, unemployed priests. (laughs) Um, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) They'd have to find a job. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, It strikes me that maybe, but see, I think that when it's cloudy, you still can, I mean, it's very clear where the sun, what part of the sky the sun is in. I mean, you could figure out, well, yeah, this side is, this direction is where the sun rises, and this is where it sets. And I think, I don't know, maybe what would happen is, be- because what it boils down to is accuracy in general,
1: mm.
0: as far as the astronomy goes, becomes extremely difficult. And I'm going to guess, you know, they would figure it out. Uh, uh, and there there probably would be a lot of, I don't know if this this was, this was the case, actually. A, uh, my mind just went in three directions at once. Woo. Coffee's kicking in. <laughs> um, number one, I imagine that, um, Without accuracy, you would have competing astronomers, right? Sort of like, well, their system, you know, looks seems to be a, works a little better, but it takes a long time for these systems for the accuracy. If anyone's actually looking for accuracy beyond just, well, the king of that tribe is the chief of that tribe is more brutal and he wins, even though his. I won't throw in a Microsoft versus um, Apple, <laughs> uh, a, a Windows versus <laughs> Apple thing. It's like, although mm-hmm. well, his. Uh, his system doesn't work quite as well, but he was more powerful than or popular. Um, But it leads me to a a genuine question, which is, do we know, um, was there a sense, do we see in the history at all, is anything we're able to see, a sense of improvement in accuracy um, within a particular period? So obviously from Stonehenge to uh, the Greenwich Observatory, we see some we see some improvement. Um, perhaps yeah. more government funding uh, Or less probably. But um, you know, do we see them like adjusting the heel stones like, ah.
2: I think like the that. key moment for me anyway was the Babylonians. So you, you huh? definitely see some improvement from the Paleolithic to the Neolithic because once people settled in particular places it seems they become much more aware of like where is the sun rising against particular spots in the landscape. And so you notice how that's changing through the year, which if you're moving around more, you wouldn't notice so much. But then it's the Babylonians. So this is sort of the first kind of <laughs> few centuries of, of civilization, of written records. They were absolutely obsessed with the sky because they saw everything that happened as an omen for something terrible that was going to happen on Earth. So if a planet changes direction or it's going to be famine or the lunar eclipse is going to be the death of the king. So they've got these teams of astronomers who are like watching everything every night and, and noting down what's happened and relating that to what's happening wow. on the Earth, telling the king about, you know, omens and what rituals he needs to do. And so it's, it's very magical thinking. But what's interesting about it is because they're watching every night and noting it down very meticulously, they started to notice repeating cycles and come up with mathematical models to describe those repeating cycles. So they were the first to use sort of numbers to make sense of the sky. And the key kind of invention around 400 BC that really made them accurate was the zodiac. So they divided the path of the sun through the sky through the year. In that circle, into your sort of 12, 30 degree segments, name them after nearby constellations. That's sort of the origins of the zodiac we have now. And they did it to ha- give them an accurate kind of scale or coordinate system in the sky. So if a planet changes direction, you can write down exactly where in the sky that happened. And that was the crucial thing for then helping their, their maths, their equations to get more and more accurate. So I think that was the sort of the key change, if you like, when it went from just looking at it by eye oh, it's yeah. up there, to this kind of mathematical, that is the coordinate point where that happened. And I guess that you wouldn't have had if you, if, you, if everything's obscured by cloud. I mean, you wouldn't have mm-hmm. known yeah, the, planets we'll never,
1: the, we'll yeah. yeah,
2: the planets mm-hmm. and the stars, you would, I mean, you would have known about the sun to the days, but also the moon's probably got enough light that you would have been aware of those monthly cycles through the cloud, even at night, some nights would be lighter. Right. Um, but you would so say you wouldn't have had any idea of the rest of it. And this whole kind of like a sort of dance of the gods, really, that is how they saw the celestial bodies in the sky that, you know, that, that would have all been completely gone. And, and and you wouldn't have had that impetus to develop that maths. You couldn't have got that accurate. So uh, yeah, I don't know how that would have then, because that was one of the first kind of uses here's of the, it. The, yeah. Go ahead. Matt, I think
1: sure. you were the best. Right. I was gonna say It's um, so there's no, uh, as you've, point out, it's not just a, a mathematical scientific exercise, but these, um, these observations have political meaning, social meaning, cosmological meaning. It's a way for the gods to talk to us. Um, so suddenly we can't. Um, and that sounds quite distressing to me, I've got to say. The, the idea that uh, um, you know we're building this new civilization in the middle of the desert, the Babylonians, um, and uh, Marduk... Uh, has no way of getting in touch with us. I mean that's really disappointing. But do you even does, well yes, I was about to say, well do we even think
0: of the idea of Marduk? But yeah, no doubt. Mythological <laughs> creatures would bound. But
2: every society has had sort of gods in this like, not only in the sky, but gods in in yeah. the sky because it's epic and, and awe inspiring and that's yeah you know, it, it sort of triggers that kind of spiritual <laughs> thinking. It lifts us up and, and we can maybe come back to that idea of, of awe when we're talking about the effects of the stars on us now because there's quite a lot of research on that. But for people in the past, if you didn't have that, I mean, you've still got awe-inspiring landscapes on Earth, but you, you can't help thinking that everything would have just been smaller or would we have just had a much greater sense of our own importance? I mean, it's big enough anyway. But that, the sky is this yeah. reminder that we're part of something so much bigger. And, and if, if you don't have that, you know, we're, you're inhabiting a much smaller world, aren't you? And perhaps we would have been even more egotistical than we are now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. It, no, no, matter actually, how, yeah. how, what would happen? What do you think if you take that further? So if you, yeah, if you like were called, back
1: to so I quite like, like this idea. That's right. So yeah. it's um, because our universe is smaller, we're more egotistical. Um, we're more concerned perhaps with, uh, let's see here, uh, personal appearance and reputation, Um, I'd imagine we're probably maybe a little more anarchic too, right? We don't have these uh, divine beings in the sky uh, watching us or or watching out for us, for that matter. So maybe we get sort of to be uh, selfish existentialists, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, more likely to and I should say, without those kinds of centralized authorities like... Priest kings, um, it's hard to build full on city states of the sort like Babylon, too. So I, I might imagine we stay in smaller communities, right? We don't I think fuse right. together in large societies.
2: I think it could have been much more chaotic because. You know, that our sense of order largely comes from the sky. It's these repeating cycles of the, the stars and the sun and the, the, the moon. That's where the sort of sense of order out of chaos, you know, the idea of the cosmos comes from. And every single ruler of any civilization through almost all of history has modeled themselves on the sky and on di- divine mm-hmm. beings, whether they're associating themselves with the sun or with Jupiter or with sort of the heaven generally that's where their authority comes from and this sense of order that then they're imposing that order from the sky onto earth. And that's what makes people submit to them. It's hard to question authority if it's coming from the heavens. So again, if you don't have that sense of, of order and power from above, what do your leaders model themselves on? Um, yeah. So I think it really would be much more chaotic. Here's, 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 mm-hmm.
0: Although interestingly, I, I, um, I admire, Matt, your your thoughts that maybe they would feel more empowered, um, perhaps because of it is something I refer to often, my Jewish upbringing, that the sense of guilt wouldn't go away and that <laughs> the fear of what something looking down on you wouldn't go away simply because you don't see them as dots. In fact, it could be even more terrifying. It's all, it's like the panopticon, like you don't know, you know, it's like if the reason uh, cops wear uh, sunglasses, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you don't know where the... So the sky... There are... Sun, imagine if... Yeah, the sky is gray. Yeah. But
1: mm-hmm.
0: also people are, you know, people
1: will obsess on anything. And in fact, it was no, that's important. And actually, I, think you, that, I think that yeah. meshes in an interesting way with what Joe was saying, is that, you yeah. know, you can imagine that they're, they're, we, we still imagine authority figures out there, but yeah. they're not orderly and clean the way Uh, astral deities are right as joe points out there's the sense of order we get from if we impress our deities on the sky where things are orderly um so if we get our um our idea of divinity not from an orderly heavens but from i don't know what you see when you kick over a rock um, and bugs scurry around, uh, <laughs> something yeah. like that. Well, we'd have or volcanoes it's really
2: like and earthquakes. You've still got yeah. this sort of set, maybe yes. an underworld, right. a hell or natural disasters. Yeah. These would be the terrifying yeah. things that we'd, yeah, that's right. we'd and, be and worried those
1: about. Feel, yeah, and those feel deeply arbitrary and yeah. unpredictable, yeah. right? Um, so maybe instead of a, a orderly... Uh, social system modeled on an orderly universe. We have a totally chaotic social system based on what seems to be a totally chaotic universe. Yeah, or even I I feel like the place
0: to look for what the mythology of the sky would have been in this instance would be for us to look at the real mythology of the sea. Because I feel like it basically would be like having the sea Uh, or the ocean Mm -hmm. above your head, right? Mm -hmm. This just vast blankness that all, But still is, you know, suddenly gets turbulent, you get tornadoes and whatever. It's just this, um, whatever sailors experience, people would have to experience constantly. Um, the fright, the weird, you know, the stories, the strange, like they see lights in the distance, they see ghosts. I mean, it, it's kind of bizarre imagining that. We're, we're literally talking about Scotland, if, you, if you're really almost talking more of like a fog. <laughs> that's another, actually, that's a deeper question. I, save that for another one, but like, what if what if we just lived in the total so fog? That would be incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think possibly, and then we'll jump to the present. Uh, I feel like the space program, something I'm always a booster for, and I definitely would have been a booster even in Neolithic times for our space program, Uh the urge perhaps to go up into the sky and explore it would be maybe even greater, oddly enough, than you it was. probably have different with the stars.
2: camps though. I think people will be arguing about, oh, there's nothing up there, there's no point, why are you yep. bothering? And the people going, no, well, we there's something <laughs> beyond. And the, the stars were such an, a sort of an inspiration for driving science. So I think it probably would have been a, a sl- you know, a slower development, but then, you know, in the end, I think we would have got there because even the Vikings had sunstones, like sort of crystals that let through sort of polarized light, which we're pretty sure that oh, when they navigated, right. they could use that to tell where the sun was behind the clouds, because you could see the direction of the, the light. And then, you know, with with um, spectroscopy, for example, where you you know you could start to develop sensors and telescopes that could see through the clouds. So I think we would have we would have got there, but just probably much much later on. That's amazing. Actually, when you talk about navigation,
0: I uh, can imagine now. Yes, mm-hmm. if if I, if I was taking the idea of the sea and imagining it above your head when you live on land, so there's blindness and mystery. When you actually go out to sea, you're lost. Oh yeah, And there's that would. Uh, So maybe people wouldn't even, or it certainly would have been much harder for people to sail. Yeah, so
2: if you think about migration, trade, Mm -hmm. uh, exploration, you know, the age of discovery, all of these things, they would not have happened in in that way. Um, You know, you just wouldn't have been able to travel across the oceans in the same way at that time. It was, you know, it was all based on (laughs) different methods of celestial navigation. So, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Now, we jump to the present, but remember, as Matt, Matt said, it's always been this way. So we're in an alternate present now. The whole, all of modern technology has developed, um, but strange things like, well, because navigation couldn't have been done by the stars, perhaps there was some other method. I, you know, these are things that just lurk in the past. Um, we come to the present day, and what do we see? What is our world?
2: Well, I think that, that the Earth's magnetic field would probably be really crucial in terms oh. of um, giving us direction and, and the sense right. of, of place. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm only, I haven't right. really thought about this before. But that you know, the compasses, yeah. yeah, that would have been much more dominant, wouldn't it? And maybe you'd yeah. have whole religions based on this power coming from yeah. the planet. I don't know. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, because because people knew about magnets thousands of years before they built compasses with them. Mm. Um, I think, as you suggest, because there were already really good navigational tools um, based on the sky. So, like, why bother? Mm.
2: Um,
1: It's, uh, uh, you need to have... folks like the Vikings and actually the Scots um, who, who have trouble uh, seeing the sky regularly uh, to invent this other one. So yeah, so I like I kind of like this idea of maybe um magnetism and magnets replaces all of these subtle connections to the sky um that we have today. Um so instead of astronomy being kind of the the premier science uh for most of Western civilization, um, it's uh the electromagneticians. Yeah, well, earth like,
2: sciences. And maybe we would have sent expeditions to the center of the earth, or, you know, we'd been probably much more interested in the, the oceans and the underground. Yeah. yeah, that would be our frontier. And maybe you'd have a oh, more kind wow. of. Sorry, I was just going to say maybe it would yeah, be ahead. more egalitarian. Like you were saying, we'd have smaller societies, perhaps, and, and a bit mm-hmm. more egalitarian yeah. around the planet if, you know, if the Europeans hadn't been able to sail across the oceans and colonize the planet in quite the same way. It would be harder to. Well, that's an. Theory. I
1: think that's an important point. Is that right? Is that. Um uh, European imperialism relies on these tools of navigation, um, uh, really crucially. So if navigation is just a little bit harder, um, then maybe say the Mesoamerican civilizations, um, like the Mayans and the Aztecs, uh, and the Incas survive much longer mm. than they do otherwise. Uh, and when, uh, when those civilizations meet up, they're maybe on firmer footing than they would have been otherwise.
0: Yeah. And of course
1: the, uh, because I was about to say, well, I don't know about the Neolithic
0: monuments, but whenever a compass uh, capability is developed, then monuments are aligned towards, you know, the the magnetic poles instead of the solstice, for instance. Perhaps, although that wouldn't help you, (laughs) that'd be a fine religious thing, but it wouldn't help you with your crops. So, like, without the ability, is it true that, Mm. that if you that the accuracy, for instance, of the Babylonians uh, th- must have improved agriculture? Is that because they haven't have a finer... So in other words, do we now live in an age where... What is agriculture like now, given the fact that it, it, it remains a bit loose? <laughs> it, it, it's hard to specify the exact um, Yeah, schedule. I don't
2: know if the accuracy of astronomy helps... all that much. I mean, the Greeks did Mm -hmm. have the star calendars, which would say, well, this constellation is rising, so then you plant this crop. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that necessarily improved the agriculture. I'm sure you could find other markers to do that. Um, so I, I, I think it was more about the the order and the meaning and the spiritual aspect really. Mm -hmm. So
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And something to, you know, to, to consider too, is that, um, Christianity ends up modeling itself on these old solar religions, mm-hmm. uh, which I should say, Joe, is one of my favorite parts of your book, as you, you talk about this kind of <laughs> thing, um, is uh, if we, because, you know, early, very early Christianity is its own kind of thing. And then the Romans kind of turn it into this pseudo sun worship. Um, if uh, if we don't have those kinds of sun religions in the first place, uh, what's the what's the core model for our You know, dominant spiritual forms. Um, uh, I don't know.
2: And again, you wonder if there's earth gods, or maybe a light a light god rather than a a sun god. I don't know. And Mm -hmm. you just think they're Mm -hmm. surely at much more variation. Um, You know, don't know whether. Uh, Sorry.
0: No, I I feel like the the gods would have come from land forms and weather
1: Mm -hmm. and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or geologists, right? Yeah, uh, more like more like Pele, uh, less like Marduk. Right?
2: Yeah. yeah, but then there's timekeeping yeah. to think about as well, because for Ooh, so much wow. of history, time was the motions of the cosmos. Right, it was the the sun, the moon, the um, the circling stars. That's where time came from, and when we did first developed mechanical clocks. Um, a, a lot of the inspiration for doing that was from the sort of geared models of the cosmos that already existed. So the Greeks mm-hmm. started using clockwork models to try and, have, try and model the motions of the sun and the moon and the planets. And then in the first mechanical clocks, that technology was translated into these models of the cosmos that could run themselves. Essentially, those were the first clocks. Actually telling the time wasn't sort of the main thing of them. And it's only later that as they became more accurate, they were seen as sort of transcending the sun. They became more accurate in the sun. So they drop all the astronomical displays, become more about telling the time, and now are obsessed with more and more accurate time telling. Um, And would that have happened in the same way if it hadn't have been for this idea of the the universe as a clock of, you know, you're seeing time kind of playing out across the sky? Mm -hmm. So you would have obviously had passing of days and nights, but not, you know... It, it's it's yeah. yeah in a much more sort of fuzzy way perhaps.
0: Yeah, th- this whole notion that everything is more fuzzy, it's
2: mm.
0: mushy, um, I would think have, would have some kind of huge uh, something about the power, the culture that evolves um, mm-hmm. would maybe celebrate that more mm-hmm. or. You know, maybe there wouldn't, uh, it's probably not true, but I was, you know, maybe there wouldn't be an obsession with accuracy or
2: something. Yeah, maybe more comfortable with ambiguity. Yeah. And Uh, the sun has always been this sort of symbol of reason, um, of Uh clear logical thinking. So maybe that, yeah, wouldn't be so prized.
1: In fact, yeah, I like. I mean, that's a fascinating idea, and you know that uh, you know we've been talking about sort of how this might um, hold back certain scientific ideas, but it might make. But the, the the willingness to embrace uncertainty might make it easier to deal with ideas like. Statistical reasoning, or quantum mechanics, mm-hmm. for instance. Um, oh wow! <laughs> there's this story where Niels Bohr, one Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum physics, goes to visit Japan um, and finds that the physicists there are are not at all phased about the quantum weirdness. And he says, "Why? Why aren't you bothered by this? We spend all of our time worrying about it." Um, and Yukawa, the Japanese physicist there, says, uh, "We were never corrupted by Aristotle." Meaning nice. we never had expectations that the universe should work in this machine-like yeah. way. So it didn't bother us to learn that it didn't.
2: So the idea that some things will always be hidden, you know, if you've got the clouds. Um, yeah, yeah and there isn't necessarily these, these sort of sharp mechanical rules. Yeah, that's really so interesting.
0: Uncertainty, principle. of course there's always uncertainty. Half this, more than, way more than half of our vision is gray, so... Of course. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, I do wonder. I don't know if this is cheating, but would we have evolved yeah. different eyes? Is there? there been clouds? Uh, well, that's
1: an interesting thought too. Yeah. So
2: perhaps we would have sensed um, something. I don't know, but that's probably a slightly different question.
0: Or ears, we would have developed. Radio different astronomy. senses.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Yeah. We would have had ears <laughs> somehow.
0: Yeah, that actually would be kind of amazing. Now, what? but we'd be remiss. I, I do want to jump to the present, and let's say we have no sky um, this is a genuine real problem and I'm I'm uh, I'm tempted to actually but but ho- Matt hold me back I'm tempted <laughs> to sort of tweak or even break our what the if because I'm so interested in what happens when we lose the sky um, but I would but I would say this you know I don't need to because there are generations of kids growing up in New York City and in other cities right now, yep. okay. who don't see the sky, right? Mm-hmm. So what might, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on uh, on that, well, Joe? I should
1: say, I mean, one of the things that I many of my students, you know, college age students today um, yeah. have grown up not being able to see the sky. Um, so, mm. for amongst other things, they don't realize that timekeeping is related to natural rhythms. Like they're vaguely aware that the sun appears in one part of the sky and disappears in another. Um, But they don't have that sense of stars, for instance, at all. They've never sat out at night. Um, and many of them, I find, are genuinely shocked at this notion <laughs> that the sky wow. is is this uh, regular dynamic place. Well, even Joe, the idea that the is.
2: stars are circling every night, I think that's not mm-hmm. common knowledge. Just just thought yeah. that there's some lights up there, they don't really do anything. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yep. And that's the thing I have to start with when I teach history of astronomy classes. I have to say, this is what the night sky looks like um, because they do not know. They don't even uh, know there's a
0: history... <laughs> There's a history of something um,
1: that they don't even know the present. Yeah, so for instance, I mean, one of the, the classical Greek arguments about why uh, the earth must be round, you know, they knew the earth was round, As they say, they say the heavens are obviously round because we can see them moving across the sky every night in, in this obviously circular pattern. Uh, so they say, well, obviously the earth is round too because it wouldn't make any sense for the earth to be flat if the sky around it was round. Yeah. Um, but that argument holds no water for the students who don't know <laughs> who have never watched the night sky. Um, yeah. So these, these basic realizations about the, the world around us um, escape them.
0: And these are, these are students living in, you know, one of the most modern metropolises in uh, human history and they're getting a fine education mm-hmm. yeah. and yet this, this crazy blind spot. Yeah, yeah. So Joe, what do you, what do you, uh, where are we headed? What, <laughs> these children are the ones who are inheriting the earth. but they. Yeah, I
2: think it's really, it it is really worrying. And I mean, we talked about light pollution, but it's also modern technology. You know, we have central heating, electrical lights, GPS, clocks, like all the reasons that people looked to the sky. We we have no practical need to do that anymore. So it's both of those two things together. And the, the one thing that I wanted to mention was just over the last few years, there's been a lot of research into the emotion of awe, You know, the way people feel when they look up to the stars, which is defined scientifically as the way we feel when we're confronted by something vast that dwarfs us, that we struggle to comprehend it. There's a sort of edge of fear to it as well. You know, something so big, it sort of dwarfs you, threatens to subsume you. And, you know, looking up to the night sky is like the quintessential source of awe. And psychologists are finding that it makes people uh, more curious, more creative Happier, um, they feel as if they have more time, they feel more connected. They also become more generous, they make more ethical decisions, more likely to sacrifice, make sacrifices to help others, care less about money and more about the planet. So, this, when you're confronted with something vast, it seems like it, it, draws us out of ourselves, you know, rather than just being focused on our own sort of selfish daily concerns. And that's all important. It makes you feel connected to something bigger. And that kind of changes people's perspective. And that is, I think, the most worrying aspect of what will happen when we no longer have that. We're just looking at small screens all the time, not being reminded of this bigger picture being lifted out of ourselves. And I think, yeah, that's really worrying going forwards. And that's something that applies to all of nature you can get awe from lots of different things on the planet as well, mm-hmm. but which we're also becoming disconnected from, but you know, this, the sky, the stars is really the sort of quintessential um, source of that.
1: Yeah. And I do, I, well, oh, go ahead, Matt. Wait. No, I was going to say that's, this is a really powerful thing if you haven't sort of seen it happen. Um, you know, I've raised my kids here in New York city. Um, and I, I, one of my great regrets as a, Parent is that they don't know the night sky, right? They'll, if they mm. see two or three stars, they'll say, Oh, dad, it's so beautiful up there tonight. Look at how many stars there are. Mm. Um, and then and um, like I had the states. opportunity, yeah. exactly, right? Uh, and then I had the opportunity to teach a class in Hawaii once. So I brought them. Um, along with me. Uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this was so they could see the night sky for the first time. Um, so I remember the the first night we were there, I had to wake them up in the middle of the night once the, the Milky Way was up to take them out and see that the, the, the true night sky and have that experience of awe and the sublime, as they often say, right? Um, because that's an important part of being human. And I wanted to make sure they had that.
2: Well, you do get this generational forgetting, I think, that each generation just remembers what it was like when they were kids, but you don't realise yeah. what there was yeah. originally that's been been lost. So the, I think yeah. the latest dark sky surveys show that 80% of us in Europe and the US can no longer see the Milky Way. I think there's only a few dozen stars now visible from modern cities compared to thousands that there would have been before. So it's this huge you know cultural practical spiritual loss and it does surprise me how one of the things i was interested in writing the book was how have we got to the point where that doesn't seem to matter very much to people that the stars have been so important i mean you do have dark sky campaigns now but most people aren't really that bothered like like you were saying with your students, they don't even realize what was there in the first place. Yep. And you think if our view of the sea, the oceans maybe, or forests was being lost, people would be up in arms about it. But somehow with the stars, it just feels like there's this amnesia that we've kind of forgotten what a huge part of you know life right. this, this once was. And it has really sort of shaped humanity as in all the ways that we've talked about.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, even there were periods, of, there were periods in the development of any city where, views of the sea for instance were lost and most likely the people who for whom it was lost and they could not recover it or to or, or you know uninfluential to make any difference and then the, that is why the rich and powerful continue to build right we have the tallest residential buildings in the world in new york now um they build those uh, towers and then they don't even live in them but that's a whole nother story. that's another story but they have the view um good, good views uh So go forward. Let's go forward. This is the the ultimate power of the what the if. Let's go forward even just 100 or 200 years. And and I'm going to throw one monkey wrench into this whole uh, negativity, which is that simultaneously we uh, it's almost like there's a race uh, going against this trend which is that we are going to be in space. And I I think it's a struggle and that this lack of appreciation for astronomy and the dark sky and all that kind of stuff probably hurts. You know, if there was more of that, there'd be more funding for space exploration and development and all that kind of stuff, possibly. But nonetheless, it does continue, you know, based on some heroes, uh, both governmental and non-governmental. I'm a member of the Planetary Society and things like that, Carl Sagan's group. Um, Going into space is going to... (laughs) blow everybody's mind, no matter who they were. I can't even imagine, you know, only astronauts. And I think there are about, um, I was reading that there's a great book by Scott Kelly, one of the twins, uh, Mark and Scott Kelly. And he has a a fantastic book uh, called Endurance, which is also about his life on the space station. Anyway, he, he mentions there's about two, just over 200 people in the entire history of humanity who have gone on a spacewalk. And he says, that is, you know, it was one thing to be in the space station, but you're looking out a little porthole and it's magnificent. But he says, those few times you get to go out in space, he's like, it's unbelievable. He, he described a, um, opening the hatch for his very first spacewalk. And he was like, you know, it's a complicated procedure and it's dangerous and all that kind of stuff. And he had to look at his, make sure his partner also was ready to go and all this kind of stuff. And so he just was like going through a mechanical procedure. I've just got to open this door and get out. And then it was like a little bit stuck and he's pulling it. And all of a sudden, boom, it opened. And he said he was hit with like a thunderbolt. Th- the suddenly he saw the earth. And he said, the clarity with which you see it is mind boggling. There's no, right? There's no haze. I mean, all the haze is below you. Mm-hmm. And he You're said, the, the darkness of the light against the dark, all those things, that how different it is in space. Um totally changes mind and, and having had the privilege to speak to some astronauts who've been up there, you know, they all say, God, I wish people could see that, um, but we may not get there. So the, so let's say the people who never get to space, what's, that, what's Earth like for those people who… Um, yeah, maybe yeah. it causes a
2: huge rift <laughs> in Well, one accident. moment I think that we should maybe think about is what is the moment when you first look beyond the clouds? So, all of human history, there has only been the clouds. Uh-huh. We've seen nothing beyond yeah. it. And mm-hmm. then comes the moment, yeah. whether it's with telescopes or space travel, that you realize the vastness of the cosmos. What does that do to the psyche yeah. of the human race? And that's the, yeah, that, the first
0: yeah, clear day.
2: Yeah, so you're not. Earth is not everything and we are not alone. We're just this tiny speck. And, you know, that's something that's been looked at in science fiction in various different ways. Mm-hmm. So in in my book, I mention a story by Isaac Asimov um, called Nightfall yeah. about a, a yes. planet. Yeah, where- I was thinking about nightfall. Yeah, Yeah, so they've got all these different suns, so it's always daylight. So they've never seen the stars, and then every two thousand years, there's kind of a rare eclipse where they're all eclipsed at the same time, and you see the the starry sky for the first time. And there's all these sort of myths around it from the last time it happened, and civilization always collapses. And then they're they're, they're so it just basically sends them mad. This vastness that they've never seen, and they're all desperately starting fires to kind of blot out the darkness, and civilization burns to the ground. And um, (laughs) so that was his take on it. Mm And then Douglas Adams in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I'm trying to remember, I think he had a similar one where there was a a, a planet with clouds and then the first time they saw beyond, and I I might be remembering this wrong and and fans will say if I am, but I think they immediately went, right, we must go out and kill everybody else in the galaxy. We can't have all these other people out there. So there's all these different ideas of what what happens when when the veil is, is suddenly lifted because it's always been there for us. So yeah, I
1: don't know, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. yeah, well, and it's interesting that in both of those examples, the, um, the, the conclusion is madness. That is, there's yeah. something about the human psyche can't handle that vastness unless maybe it's been adapted to it over the millennia um, and we've built these structures to, to make Absolutely. sense of it. Um, so that's Isn't an interesting, interesting. Um, you know, way of thinking about that, that awe Turns over into horror sometimes. Um, so I can, I can. Uh, so if we've got our um, our first astronauts on this cloud-bound planet, maybe they peek over the top and come back down and never tell anyone what they saw. or they get missed like,
2: as lunatics or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yes, that's, that's right. it. they come back yeah.
1: and they report what they've it's seen. Like Nobody returning says,
2: from the dead, I've seen the promised land. Like, <laughs> that's, right.
1: yeah, that's, right. that's just yeah. that's just absurd. Neil and Buzz, what's what's wrong with you people? Yeah. Um, and we uh, just lock them up uh, forever. Yeah, yeah. Or they go back to the moon. They say, "Well, we'll stay. There. We'll stay. There. We're just going to stay here." Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but then I guess moving um, forwards, if that becomes you know accepted, maybe it would be equivalent to us discovering alien life everywhere. It's just one of those things that
1: mm-hmm.
2: suddenly enlarges your cosmos and absolutely changes yeah. how you see your place in the universe. Yeah. Um, my, the, yeah. the
0: final step of my imagining uh, of us kind of going into space and suddenly being overwhelmed with it. Honestly, I think the ultimate end is that there are, you know, space stations and ships and, you know, constantly traveling. Everyone's traveling through space and um, everyone's looking at their phones and there's no <laughs> because It's like <laughs> you get bored with the thing that's, that's all yeah, there's the few in the observation gallery.
2: I yeah. think it might be a almost more fundamental than that in that how do you like we already do this with the earth but do you treat your surroundings as kind of material resources to be sort of used and exploited or is this a precious habitat that we're kind of part of and connected with that we look after and i think we're in danger of taking um that sort of first sort of exploitative mindset into into space you're already seeing this with this sort of territory grab with all of these sort of small satellites being sent up there or when we're going onto other planets it's it's very much about the economics of it it's companies getting up there wanting to try and make a profit we're not really treating the rest of the cosmos with very much respect and maybe that's what comes from having you know the objective data and the measurements and the science which is brilliant and I love and really important but if you're not matching that with the personal experience and that that or then you kind of get a kind of skewed way of approaching the universe, I think.
0: Yeah. For me, I wonder if we wrap up, I'm just wondering if it's a good question for both of you. Do you think that the difficulty of the public appreciating or understanding science, for instance, part of it might come from the fact that it's one both the science uh, technologies become much more complicated and the knowledge of science, you know, what science knows about nature is much deeper and more complicated than the ordinary person can just understand. So um, it's all media, You know, we really depend on those authority figures to be able to explain it to us. That's one thing. But already everything's being mediated through somebody else. Um, and so if things like, uh, I don't think this could account necessarily for the decline of religion, <laughs> but like, you know, suddenly the, the whole notion of awe depends on not being able, not people, not literally, viscerally experiencing, you know, the total uh, that feeling of awe, as you described, terror. If, beauty, if you look at you know,
2: Stonehenge, that moment of the winter solstice and the sunrise and the sun yeah. being framed in stone and everybody there is watching it and seeing it and experiencing it, and that's so real. And yeah, it's so distant now. You just, someone else just tells you what date it's on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do people, so what do kids think when they see Star Wars and movies with all those stars? In it? They just think that's some sort of. Well, it's a movie, right? It's magical. That's the I think I like this, yeah.
2: Out. It just mixes in with all of the computer graphics and everything you see in all yeah. of the fantasy movies or Minecraft or whatever it is that they're playing. And I guess, you know, we're moving more to virtual reality, um, becoming better and better. They're spending more and more time online. Yep. Maybe that's where they're always going to come from in the future. I don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Or the high scores of others and why you can't. <laughs> Why do you get killed seconds into the game constantly? I don't know. Yeah, um,
2: well, we already so your our book. celebrities at start. Sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. I was going to say, our celebrities, you know, they're our stars now, obviously. Like, you know, yes. that's where it's coming from. Yes, yes,
0: indeed. Uh, so the book is The Human Cosmos. And what I love right there is you see human and cosmos right next to each other. Uh, what's the sort of, what's a um, when you came away from the, the whole studying this phenomenon, of humanity and the cosmos, the kind of a deep feeling or a, a takeaway, um, people have, uh, after reading the book.
2: Yeah. So, so one thing was the extent to which. I think that that view of the cosmos, of the sky, has shaped humanity from politics to religion to art to our own bodies. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing that I wasn't expecting was that over telling that story, and you see how we've built this scientific intellectual understanding of the universe, and we've got telescopes that can see further than our senses ever could, and we've got this incredible intellectual knowledge about what the universe is made of and how it works – but as we've relied more and more on sort of evidence and measurement and mathematics, you, you see, taking that sort of long view, how human experience has kind of been sidelined and sort of drained away at every stage, and nothing has really replaced that. So now all of our knowledge and understanding really comes from the science, which, as I keep saying, is, is wonderful. But I think we've lost the importance of having that direct human connection. We don't see our own personal experience of the stars is actually telling us anything useful anymore. And I think that it really does, that, that sort of wisdom and inspiration and meaning that you get from the stars is also important. So really the sort of plea of the book is to is that we need to rescue that and, and start paying more attention um, to our, to our own experience when it comes to, um, the stars, but, you know, in, in, in all of life that, that also matters. We need that sort of humanity and, and compassion and awe to go alongside the, the evidence and the data. Mm, well,
0: that's, that's fascinating. fascinating. You know, yeah. 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 It's like we, you know, basically there's, there's a human, uh, there's a ritual or a rite that every person should be, uh, it should be given to them if they, if it is something that needs to be given to them, which is a direct physical uh, experience of seeing the cosmos. You know, it's almost like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. seeing
2: the Milky Way, there it should ever- be a right to see our own galaxy. I think there should be something they're protecting that. And at the, at the moment it's, it's more of a, it's just up to, to, to companies. To, they can send satellites up, but there's nothing protecting that it, that right to see the the stars. And it's not just about astronomers. That's important. They need that access, but it's for everybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And images don't, I mean, I think you get lazy and you feel like images, well, I've seen a picture of it. And I think like Matt, you were talking about when you take your kids out to Hawaii or to see the true spectacle of the night sky. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of those experiences I've had where I'm driving across uh, Washington State once in the middle of the state in the middle of the night, stunningly clear, so clear. I almost <laughs> took me a moment to get out of the car to look at it because it was just like, whoa! And I think you almost forget that you that <laughs> that you can experience something so much yeah. more intense than you realize. You know, just. By walking outside. Yeah, so it's a
2: transcendent experience when you yeah. when you really yeah. see a dark sky. It's it makes you feel like lifted up and, and connected. Yeah. Writers through history talk about that. It's called um, celestial yeah. vaulting, apparently. So that a really kind of mind-blowing yeah. experience when you when you really see the stars in their full effect that a lot of us have just forgotten, I think.
1: I didn't well, know there was a term for that.
0: <laughs> Thank you for celestial for the celestial vault. <laughs> uh, Thanks are, so much for having are me. Yes, we are experiencing now. The book is The Human Cosmos by Joe Marchant. Uh, available everywhere, including your independent local booksellers. Um, I know our little bookstore here. Uh, you can still go in. You have to go in with a mask on and only six people at most in the store, but yeah. you go there. Uh, or everywhere on the, uh, the worldwide webs
1: and elsewhere. Uh Matt, do you have anything you would like to plug? Uh, nope, nothing uh, exciting going on for a little bit. Still nope. stuck indoors. Stuck. <laughs> from Yeah, from what well, this is, th- thank
0: you, Joe, also for, for really opening up our minds. <laughs> Just thinking that I recommend the book for many reasons, but especially now if you're cooped up, we've, we've all been locked in, locked down. Get something that will take you out to the farthest reaches of the universe. Um, is there uh, Joe, uh, a website um, or are you, are you on Twitter where can people find more um,
2: about yeah I have a website which is just joemarchant.com or I am on Twitter every so often at joemarchant
0: right on, right on. great um, our website is whattheif.com you can go there and find all, all about uh each of our shows, we we, uh, we we endeavor to add more information about each topic, so check that out, and uh, you can see all our other episodes using your podcast app right now, the one you're listening to, uh, the one you're using to listen to this show. You can find all our other episodes uh, there, going all the way back to the beginning of time, uh, and also using that little device. If you could leave a review or a rating, like five stars, uh that's one less than the number of stars you can see in the sky in New York City. So it really shouldn't be that much effort. <laughs> Five stars would be fantastic. Um, I remember when I moved to New York, I realized, oh, the moon here is just another street light. Yeah, uh, it yeah, comes and goes. Um, leave us a review. That'd be fantastic. It really helps us grow the show. And we like to do things like this, that like bring science appreciation and science education to people using the imagination to inspire Joe, helped us do that tremendously. Um, Matt, would you would you care to uh, bring Joe up to speed on our our ritual? It goes back uh, to Neolithic.
1: Times. That's right. Yep. Yes, our our ending ritual of the show is we uh, uh, in unison say the name of the show in over dramatic fashion, um, uh, quite uh, slowly and intensely as we perhaps as we first poke our head. Uh, above the cloud-covered sky, um, and see all the possibilities of the universe around us, uh, we suddenly shout out in
2: awe.